Let's pray together. Father, though we have not seen him, we love him. And though we do not see him now, we believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Lord, we ask that you would indeed enable us to obtain the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. And Lord, Though we are, for a little while, grieved for various trials, we pray that the tested genuineness of our faith would be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we ask that you would enable us to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us when he is revealed. We ask it in his name. Amen. I would invite you to open your Bible this morning to Psalm 40, and as you turn there, I want to suggest two scenes for your imagination. The first scene is a historical one, and so I would, I would, I would invite you to imagine what it would look like, what it looked like on the day when David was at last delivered from all of his persecutors from all the, the spears thrown by Saul and the armies chasing, around him, uh, chasing him around through the wilderness, and, and, and perhaps on the day when the Ark of the Covenant was brought into Jerusalem, not the one that Uriah uh, uh, or Uzziah got struck dead on, but on the day when they successfully brought the Ark into Jerusalem and it was finally allowed to rest there, a day of great celebration and rejoicing. I think it, it may, maybe it's something comparable to the inauguration of a president or perhaps even the scene at the end of the, the football game when the MVP is announced. It's, it's a triumphant moment. And that moment anticipates another moment, an even better scene. So here's your second scene. Imagine what it's going to look like on the day when the Lord Jesus, at last raised from the dead, is enthroned to reign. And as you consider those, those things, uh, let me draw your attention to Psalm 40. And, and I want to point out a few surrounding features of this passage that's before us. And, and so I would invite you to look, look past Psalm 40, past Psalm 41, and look at Psalm 42. And in, in the text of the scripture that you have, you probably have the words book 2 above Psalm 42. And so, so Psalms 1 through 41 are, are referred to as book 1, and then Psalms 42 through 72 are going to be book 2. And then notice the superscription to Psalm 42. It says, to the choir master, a mosquil of the sons of Korah. And every one of the Psalms 42 through 49, except 43, is going to be of the sons of Korah. And these sons of Korah were the guys that David put in charge of thanksgiving at the house of the Lord after the ark rested there. So, so what it suggests to us, the content of Psalm 40 and, and what we've come through in 
around Psalms 34 through uh, 39, it suggests that David has at last arrived at the moment when the difficulties from Saul are over and now he's enthroned as king and they bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem and then we have this series of psalms from the sons of Korah whom he placed over uh, the offering of the worship, really, the worship at the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. So loosely speaking, I think what's happening in the, in the Psalter is we're, we're tracking with the, the, the story of David in the book of Samuel. And as we approach Psalm 40, I think we should bear in mind where we are in David's story. Uh, David is going to relate here in Psalm 40. Look at Psalm 40, verse 1. He says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. Look back at 39.7. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? Uh, 38.15. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. So he's waiting, he's waiting, he's waiting. And finally, now in Psalm 40, the Lord inclines to him and hears his cry. And then verses 1 through 3, he talks about what it was like when the Lord finally delivered him. And, and if you want to follow along in your bulletin, there's a, an outline here, and I'm, I'm sort of overviewing the outline. So Psalm 40, verses 1 through 5, delivered at last. And then in verses 6 through 11, we have the proclamation of the prophesied one. What we're going to see here is, is what David says when, he, when he's brought forward as king and enthroned at last. And then in verses 12 through 17, we, we get sort of a warning and a promise. We get a warning to the remaining enemies of David and then a, a promise to those who have aligned themselves with him, those who have taken his side. So this, this is what we're, what we're approaching in Psalm 40, and, and this is a text that speaks to us. Because as Denny prayed, we're, we're in a season in our culture when everybody's looking for a hero, everybody is looking for somebody whom, whom they can look to and feel unreserved enthusiasm about. Everybody's looking for somebody in whom they can place all their hopes for the future. And what Psalm 40 describes for us is how first David filled that role for Old Testament Israel and then how David is pointing forward for a greater descendant of his who will fill that role for the whole world. So let's look together at the way that he describes what he felt and what he said and what it was like when he was delivered at last in verses 1 through 5 here of Psalm 40. So as I've noted, we've seen him waiting in the previous couple of psalms. And now he says, I waited patiently for the Lord he inclined to me and heard my cry. Do you know what this is? This is testimony. This is David saying, perhaps I was where you are. And, and we can look at David's life and we can know what that was like. It wasn't pleasant. It, it wasn't easy. People were actually trying to kill him. He could not enter the city of Jerusalem. He could not stay. Even at one point he delivered this city called Calah. And, and then he consulted the Lord and he said, because he, they knew Saul was coming, and he consulted the Lord, are these people whom I have just delivered from their enemies going to hand me over to Saul? 
And the Lord said, yes, they will hand you over to Saul. And so he had to flee that city too. He couldn't stay anywhere. He had, it was almost like he had no place to lay his head. And David is looking back on all that time and he's saying, I waited patiently for the Lord. I, I know that there are all kinds of waitings going on in this room. Um, just, just this week, my wife and I were discussing the way that you know, in, in, in some of our children's lives, we've come through this period where we're waiting, and then, praise God, there's a transformation. Things get better. We persevere in the discipline, and then uh, we, it's like we have a breakthrough, and all of a sudden we find we're not having to spank that kid anymore. This is great. And then there are other situations where we're still waiting to get to that moment. And David is saying to us, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me. And heard my cry. As you persevere, are you waiting on the Lord? Are you calling out to him? And if you are, David is saying, I was where you are. And he heard. And he answered. And then look at what he describes the Lord doing for him in verse 2. He says, he drew me up from the pit of destruction. Out of the miry bog. And set my feet upon a rock making my steps secure. Another way to, to render this, parts of these phrases, he brought me up from a roaring pit, from the muck of the mire, and he made my feet stand on a high ridge. Now think about the contrast there. From a low place that is, that is muddy and, and nasty to a high ridge that is solid and firm. D David was, he was lifted up and he was made secure. This is what the Lord did for him when he inclined and heard his cry. And then he goes on to say here, he, well, well, before we get to verse 3, let me say one more word about verse 2 there. He says, he drew me up from the pit of destruction. So far as we know, David was never literally in a pit. You know, if you think over his story in the book of Samuel, that there wasn't a moment when David was put in a pit that he was somehow rescued from. But there was a figure in the Old Testament that is repeatedly described as being in a pit. Maybe, maybe Joseph comes to mind. Yeah, Joseph was put in a pit by his brothers. And then as, as his story unfolds in Genesis 37 through uh, the end of the book, he, he recounts the way that he was put in a pit. And it's the same, same term uh, used here in Psalm 40 to describe the way that Joseph was put in that pit. And when we look at the, the narrative of Samuel, there are some curious parallels between David's experience and Joseph's experience. Just, just one of these, for instance, um, Joseph's brothers had gone off and, and Joseph was back with his father, and his father sent him to go check on his brothers, and then they responded unfavorably to him. In the same way, David had stayed back with his father, and his brothers had gone off to war with Saul, and David's father sent him to go check on his brothers. And then when David interacted with him, they weren't all that pleased with the way that David was talking. They, were, they reacted unfavorably to him. And then, just as Joseph was exalted over all, all Egypt... So David was eventually exalted over all Israel. So I'm inclined to think that this is one of the ways that the Old Testament is establishing this sort of uh, parallel or, or maybe a typological connection between 
between Joseph and then David. And uh, this pattern that we see in these two men is going to be fulfilled in the one who is to come. Uh, As we've noted, uh, once David gets the ark into Jerusalem, what he does is he he, he puts these Levites, people like the sons of Korah, people like Asaph, whose name is on Psalm 50, he puts them in charge of the worship at the temple. Look at Psalm 40, verse 3. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. I, ha- I haven't read this book, but there's a book by a man, man named Peter Lightheart, and the title of it is, it captures what's going on. He, the title of it is The Davidic Liturgical revolution. And, and the point that he's making in the book is that, that in the reign of David, there was a worship revolution in Israel. And when you think about it, this is, it becomes something that just sort of jumps off the page at you because David is, he's, he's doing these worship initiatives at the house of the Lord in, in Jerusalem. He's bringing the ark in there. He's writing all these psalms that are to be used in the praise of the Lord. He's appointing all these people over the worship of the Lord. He is earnest about the praise of the Lord. That's exactly what we see here in verse 3. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. And then when he says here, many will see and fear. I I think probably what he's describing is the way that a lot of these psalms describe the difficulties that he was in that the Lord rescued him from to, to establish him as king. And so it's like what he's saying is many are going to see what the Lord did on my behalf and they're going to respond to this by fearing the Lord. And they'll put their trust in the Lord. So this is a curious kind of fear, a fear that promotes trust. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Uh, having having uh, said these things, David then seems to be in verse 4 reflecting on the righteous way of life. And he says, blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. And his own story would bear this out, wouldn't it? His own, all through those difficulties with Saul, all through those persecutions, all through his dealing with his own sin and temptations, he's trusting the Lord and the Lord is bringing him through. And, and he contrasts that approach with those who turn to the proud or those who go astray after a lie. And it's as though he's saying, look, this is what you need to do. You need to trust the Lord, not look to the proud, not listen to the lies. You need to trust in the Lord. Then he says in verse 5, you have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds. God's deeds on David's behalf were wondrous. God's deeds in our lives are wondrous. You should, we should cultivate gratitude. We should cultivate the ability to see the way that God is intervening and directing and providing and blessing us. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. 
it's, it's, it's remarkable, isn't it, to think that the almighty creator of the universe has planned our way, has given thought to our little lives. In response to this, David says, none can compare with you. And then he says, I will proclaim and tell of them, which is what he's doing. All through the book of Psalms, this is what he's doing. He's proclaiming the Lord's wondrous deeds. He's proclaiming the Lord's thoughts for his people. And then he he concludes there at the end of verse 5, yet they are more than can be told. If you start thanking God and you start contemplating all the ways that God has directed your path and, and made your footsteps firm, you will never be able to tally the record of all there is that the Lord has done for you. So he's delivered at last in verses 1 through 5. And then in verses 6 through 11, we get the proclamation of the promised one. Now, the reason that we read earlier, the reason that I asked Mike to read 1 Samuel 15 is because I think here in verses 6 through 8, David means to to call to our minds the, the words of 1 Samuel 15 verses 22 and 23. And and the way that that scene serves is, is sort of this climactic moment of transition. And, and, and uh, you know, I know that historically we're not strictly following the chronology because uh, it was after um, that, that moment of transition in chapters 15 and 16 that Saul began to persecute David. But it's sort of like a, a photograph that encapsulates a moment. So, you know, if, if we were to look back, let's say, on... Um, I'm just picking an example out of the sky here. If we were to look back on John F. Kennedy's presidency, you could pick a photograph from early in his life that might really capture the spirit of who he was, and you could put that forward as a symbolic, sort of iconic uh, way to communicate what his presidency meant. And somebody might say, well, that was long before he was president. We didn't know he was going to be president when that happened. We didn't know who he was going to become. And, and in response, an artist or someone interpreting history could say, that doesn't matter. It, 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 it communicates what I need to be communicated. So even though it's earlier, it gets across what's, what's being communicated. Now, what's being communicated here, I think, is this transition from David to Saul. So look at verse 6. David says, in sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted. Other other translations speak of the Lord not desiring sacrifice and offering. And then he says, burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Listen to 1 Samuel 15, 22. Does the Lord have desire for burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as for obedience to the voice of the Lord? So there's there's at least three words there. Desire, burnt offerings, and sacrifices that, that are the same terms in the two verses. And then in... Psalm 40, verse 7, David says, Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. We'll come back to that in just a second. And then he says in verse 8, I delight, I desire to do your will. Oh my God, your law is, with, is within my heart. Listen to 1 Samuel 15, 23. To obey, to do your will, is better than sacrifice. To pay attention than the fat of rams. And then... Samuel said to Saul, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, David says, your law is within my heart. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. 
So, so the way that this allusion to 1 Samuel 15, 22, and 23 serves here is it's sort of a snapshot of the moment when the Lord transitioned from Saul to David. And this, this great turning point in the narrative of Samuel is matching what I'm suggesting is a turning point in the movement of the Psalms. Because I would suggest we're coming out of a period when, Saul, when David has been responding to Saul's persecutions into a period where we're going to have Psalms about his reign once he became king in Jerusalem. Now, look at verse 6 again. David's point here, in sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Uh, the, the idea that you've given me an open ear, you've caused me to be able to hear your word. And what David is saying here is, what the Lord wants is obedience, not sacrifice. Sacrifice is just provision for those who are unsuccessful in their attempts to obey. So obedience is the Lord's first choice. Sacrifice is provided for when you try to obey and you fail. And and so what David is saying here is, Saul, in that situation that you were in, what the Lord wanted from you was obedience. He didn't need those sacrifices. He didn't want those sacrifices. He wanted you to obey. And we could say the same about the Mosaic Law, couldn't we? What the Lord wants the people of Israel to do is obey his instructions, not offer the sacrifices. He's just providing the sacrifices for when they try to obey and they blow it. And then verse 7. This verse, I think, is stunning. Psalm 40, verse 7. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. What's the scroll of the book? Look at the end of verse 8. Your law is within my heart. That's the scroll of the book. Do you hear what David is saying? David is saying, Genesis 3.15, there was this statement made to the serpent that a seed of the woman would crush his head. Genesis 12.1-3, through 3, the Lord made these promises to Abraham. And then he told Abraham that in him and in his offspring, his seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And then you continue through the narrative of Genesis and you get to chapter 49, verses 8 through 12. And the Lord, through Jacob, makes this promise about the line of Judah. And he says that the scepter is not going to depart from Judah until he comes to whom it belongs. And then you keep reading and eventually you get over to Numbers 24. And this pagan prophet, Balaam, talks about this scepter and this star that's going to arise over Israel. All these statements are pointing forward to a future king from the line of Judah who's going to be the descendant of Abraham, who's going to be the seed of the woman, who's going to crush the serpent's head. And Genesis 5 implies, I think, roll back the curses that that came as a result of God's judgment on sin and remake the world so that it's new like the Garden of Eden, but better. And David says here in verse 7, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. I think that David is recognizing, I'm from the line of Judah. The prophet Samuel appointed me king. So so there's a sense in which, there's a, a preliminary, anticipatory sense in which everything prophesied has been pointing forward to me, 
Now, David also knows, once 2 Samuel 7 has happened, David also knows that it's his descendant, his seed that's going to come from his line, the throne of whose kingdom will be established forever. So here again, we have this, this dynamic where David is describing himself, and I think he's describing himself in a way that he knows it will also apply in a bigger way to the one who is to come. Then he says in verse 8, I delight to do your will, O my God. This is true of David. He wants to obey. It's true in an even greater way of the Lord Jesus. And as Denny read, the author of Hebrews takes these words and he puts them right on the mouth of the Lord Jesus. He presents Jesus as the one saying, in the scroll of the book, it is written of me. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. Uh, it's just a part for whole figure of speech kind of thing working in the, in the, in the translation from Hebrew to Greek. And then and so Jesus is presented by the author of, of Hebrews as the one who has finally at last come in fulfillment of all the promises and in fulfillment of everything that was typified by David. Now, if we ask ourselves, how does David know? How does he know what it is that the Lord wants? Verse 6, you don't want sacrifice and offering. How does he know his own role in God's purposes? Behold, I've come in the scroll of the book. It's written of me. And how does, how does he know that what he, want, what he should desire is to do God's will? And the answer to those three questions is right there at the end of verse 8. Your law is within my heart. That's how David knows. That's how David knows what, what the Lord wants, verse 6. That's how he knows his role in God's purposes, verse 7. And that's how his delight has become a delight to do God's will will because he's internalized the word of God. He has meditated on the Torah and probably as much scripture as is available to him. So he comes on the scene in verses 6 through 8 and then in verses 9 through 11 he makes this proclamation. In verse 9 the first phrase is I have told the glad news and the reason they render it that way I've told the glad news is because the verb you used here to describe the proclamation that David is making is the verb that's going to get translated into Greek euangelizo and and if if you've probably heard that word it's the word from which we we get the the term gospel so you could render this I have told the gospel of deliverance so, so what David is saying is, I've come on the scene, and now I'm announcing the good news. And uh, you, you might note a footnote there on verse 9 uh, on the word deliverance. And down in the Lord margin, you're told that the Hebrew term means righteousness. Uh, what the ESV is doing is they're interpreting the meaning of righteousness here. And they're essentially saying to you that for God to be righteous here requires that God judge Saul and remove him and keep the promise that he made to David. So that's how righteousness becomes deliverance because God has righteously judged Saul and he's righteously kept the promises that he's made to David. So what, what David says is, I have told the good news or the glad news 
of righteousness, God's righteousness, in the great congregation. So you can imagine the assembled multitudes of the saints from all generations when the Lord Jesus announces this. Then he says, Behold, I have not restrained my lips. As you know, O Lord, I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I've not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. So three times he, he talks about how he hasn't, he hasn't suppressed the truth in unrighteousness, but rather has proclaimed it. And, and he makes two references to righteousness or deliverance. There in verse 9, I've told the glad news of deliverance. Verse 10, I've not hidden your deliverance or righteousness. He makes two references to God's steadfast love here. In the middle of verse 10, I have not concealed your steadfast love. Verse 11, uh, as for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love. And then he makes three references to God's faithfulness. And that word for faithfulness can be taken in some contexts to refer to truth. So verse 10, I have spoken of your faithfulness or truth. And then in verse, um, uh, verse 10, twice there. Again, I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness. And then verse 11, your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. So what's, what's David talking about? David is describing the character of God. And what he says about the character of God is that God is righteous, God is truthful, And God shows steadfast love and accomplishes salvation. I've spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation there in verse 10. And and in saving, all of these things are brought to bear. Because what David is doing is he's gathering everybody that loves the Lord together. And he's saying to them, God has been righteous to keep his promises. And God has been righteous and he's been faithful to the truth of of his word and and he's done justice against the wicked and this is establishing his own righteous character showing his loving kindness to those whom he whom he mercies and he's accomplished salvation on their behalf and david himself is an evidence of this because the truth of god's character has been upheld in the way that david has been preserved and delivered from saul and the way that Saul has been judged. David is also pointing forward to the one whose throne will be established forever. In verses 12 through 17, we immediately see in verse 12 why David loves God's character. David loves God's character because he needs God's character. And repeatedly, we've seen that there are two reasons that David needs God's character to be to be enacted by the Lord in his own life. One of those reasons is his own sinfulness. And the other reason is the the fact that he has these enemies who want to kill him. So he starts with his own sinfulness in verse 12. He says there in verse 12, For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. If, if we really contemplate uh, our own sinfulness, this will resonate with us because this is where every one of us lives. Sin, it, 
pervades our lives. It surrounds us and overwhelms us. It catches us and blinds us. It covers us up and then it discourages us. But David is modeling how to respond to this reality. This is where we live as human beings, every one of us. And the, if, you, if you think that's not true of you, the problem is you're thinking too shallowly. You're thinking too shallowly about God's holiness and about the implications of your own actions and impulses. But look at how David responds to this in verse 13. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to my help. And then look again at the end of verse 11. As for you, O Lord, look at all of verse 11. You will not restrain your mercy from me. He needs the Lord's mercy precisely because he's so sinful. Then he says, your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. You could render this, your loving kindness and your truth ever watch over me. And this is what we need as sinners, isn't it? And, you know, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer in Jesus, this is what we want for you. We want you to recognize, along with all of us, that we are, we are utter failures when it comes to the, the true standard of righteousness. We are all, according to our own standards of right and wrong, we are total hypocrites. And what we are as Christians is we're people who are willing to say, that's me. Yeah, I blow it. Yes, I fail to attain to my own standard of right and wrong. Yes, I am guilty and condemned before the law of God. The good news, I have told the glad news of deliverance, verse 9, the good news is that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners because of the, the way that God is, as David describes him here in verses 9 through 11, because he has this steadfast love. He has this mercy where he's pleased to forgive people when they recognize that what they've done is wrong and they turn away from that and they commit themselves to crying out to him for help like David does here in verse 13. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. That's why I'm always encouraged when somebody comes to me, as happens from time to time, and, and they confess their sin. They, they talk to me about some, sometimes it's awful things that they've done. And, and in part, my response to that always is, you know, this, that you're, the fact that you're doing this, the fact that you've got the courage and the gumption to come and get this off your chest, this is a really good sign that God's grace is at work in your life. Because this is the first step to saying... That stuff's wrong. I don't want any more to do with it. And I'm going I'm to obey the Bible and confess my sins and ask somebody to pray for me so that I can be healed. It's, 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 it's a work of grace. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, this is what we want for you. We want the healing that comes from repenting of your sin and trusting in the Lord. That's what we want you to experience in your life. So David's first problem is his sinfulness. He deals with that in verses 12 and 13. His other problem is enemies, and he deals with them in verses 14 and 15. He says, let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, aha, aha. 
And if you've been doing what our family's been doing and um, reading the, the psalm every, every night of the week that we're together, when we have family devotions, we'll read the psalm that's, that I'm going to preach the next Sunday. Or if Denny's going to preach, we'll read the next passage in Timothy. I would commend this practice to you to read, read the text in preparation for worship. And as we got to this, uh, one of my kids said, haven't we already read that psalm? And that's an astute observation because the language of verses 14 and 15 and the language of verse 16 corresponds very closely to Psalm 35, verses 26 and 27. And and that close correspondence, I would suggest, has to do with an overarching structure in this whole section of the psalm, Psalms 34 through 41. Uh, But but I'm I'm not going to go into that now. Uh, we can talk about that later if you want to pursue that. It's, it's really remarkable the way that uh, literary artistry is deployed here to communicate meaning. But think about what David is saying here. David is saying to the Lord, those people who are trying to kill me, let them be put to shame. This is a righteous feeling. I, I know sometimes Christians can tend to wonder if they ought to feel guilty for wanting the enemies of the Lord, the enemies of the gospel to be thwarted and defeated. This is righteous. David is saying, let them be put to shame. They hate you, God. They hate you so much that they want to kill your king, David. They hate you so much that they want to crucify Jesus. And David is saying, let them be put to shame. When they are God's righteousness, God's truthfulness, God's faithfulness, and God's love for his people will be put on display. Verses 16 and 17, but may all who seek you rejoice and be glad. So here's the the hope. Those wicked people who hate David, they could hear this and they could decide, I'm going to leave off trying to kill David. I'm going to start rejoicing in the Lord. And then they could have the good stuff. May all who seek you rejoice and be glad. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. And then David says, As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. That's amazing. David is saying, I'm nothing. I'm, I'm so unimpressive that when the prophet came to anoint one of the sons of my father king, my father didn't even call me in from the field. I am so unimpressive that when the king of Israel started trying to kill me, only losers joined my cause. I'm nobody. I'm I'm poor and needy. And the Lord takes thought for me. This is the kind of God the God of the Bible is. The God of the Bible is not somebody who says... I just want the big people on my team. I just want the strong and impressive smart people for my operation. No, the God of the Bible is the God who says, I'm looking out for the poor and needy. I'm looking out for the weak things of the world. I'm looking for the things that are not. Because those are the kind of people who are going to say what David says at the end of verse 17. You are my help and my deliverer. I'm not saving myself here by my own smarts by my own ability to network a good, a good counter-resistance to Saul, you are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. 
David waited on the Lord, and eventually the Lord delivered him from Saul. Jesus waited on the Lord, and he passed through suffering to glory. Enthroned in in Jerusalem, David organized worship in Jerusalem. Enthroned at the right hand, Jesus too is about the task of organizing the worship of the Lord, seeking those who will bring glory to the Father. And that task is ultimately going to be completed in the new Jerusalem. David replaced Saul after Saul's sinful sacrifice. Jesus, as the author of Hebrews tells us, replaced the old covenant after its mediators and sacrifices proved to be insufficient for the salvation and perfection of God's people. David proclaimed, verse 9 of Psalm 40, the good news of God's character, a character that would be embodied by Jesus, the Word made flesh, a character of God exposited by Jesus. The only begotten Son has made him known. David spoke of his own sin and his enemies. Jesus took the sins of his people and bore the whole burden. And those who oppose Jesus are the heirs and the fulfillments of those who had opposed David. And like David, Jesus lived to make great the name of his Father, his help and deliverer, the source of his speedy deliverance. This means that the king foretold in the scroll of the book at last, at last has come. And so we sing, behold him there, the risen lamb, because the word became flesh. He's the source of living water and bread of life. He will never be shown up in a debate. Never will his record come back to haunt him. Never will some policy proposal of his prove to be unwise. We can rejoice in him without reserve. We can trust him with all our hopes because he will never let us down. Let's pray. Father, what can we say in response to this but hallelujah? What a Savior. Lord, we ask that you would make it so for us. Give us that joy unspeakable and full of glory as we believe in the one we have not seen, as we long for his coming, and as we fix our eyes on the grace that will be brought to us on that day. We love you. We pray for your help in Jesus' name. Amen.